Thanks for listening to the Fit Archer Podcast, my friends. I'm your host, J.P. Penscover. And on episode 31 of the podcast, we have my good friend, Cody Cassidy. Cody is the owner and operator of Big Knife Outfitters in Alberta, Canada. And uh, I think what you're going to see here, number one, and I'm, I'm making a little laugh of this, but Cody's got, Cody's got the best cowboy voice in, in the world. He should be on radio of some kind. He's one of the toughest men that I have ever met. I had the privilege of getting a chance to hunt with Cody and his crew two different years in a row, uh, chasing moose, and it was just incredible. From a first-class operation, the food was incredible, the hunting was incredible, the weather is, uh, or the, 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 the place that we're at, we're in the 25 miles back in the, in the Rocky Mountains on horseback, six-hour horseback ride. It is the most picturesque scenery and wilderness that you could ever be part of. And, uh, you know, our first year there, it snowed and, and it just, it, it capped all the mountains and it was just like God himself put that right in front of us. It was just, it was, pictures will never do it justice, but we, we have a great conversation with Cody. They do a lot of different things from wilderness moose hunts and those are backpack. They do prairie land moose hunts where I think there's a hundred percent on archery moose hunts over the last seven, eight years. Obviously this last year was pretty weird to be a Canadian outfitter and uh, not allow the hunters from the U.S. to go up there and, and utilize their services. So that, that's hard on a lot of them Canadian outfitters. So I feel bad for them. Uh, they do mule deer hunts and they shoot some of the most gigantic mule deer. They have enormous whitetail. They got about everything there in, in Canada where he's at and what he runs from his outfitter business. So again, you can find him at Big Knife Outfitters. Dot com and we have a great conversation cody is also a cowboy he's a steer wrestler grew up in a, in a rodeo family and he is just one tough dude we joke about it a little bit here and there but i just felt like when i got around those guys the wranglers the outfitter or the guides in cody the outfitter i just felt like such a wimp you know i mean from the way that they handled the horses and in the way that they handled the cold weather and all that stuff. We just have a great conversation with Cody and have a really, really fun time talk about his hunting and his outfit and, and him growing up in that beautiful part of the world. So hope you enjoy it and uh, pass along to your friends. If you're on Apple, please give us a, a review. We'd love it. It always helps us reach more people. And our goal here is to reach people, inspire people with uh, hunting tips, tactics, and gear. So God bless you. God bless America. Enjoy the podcast. You are listening to the Fit Archer Podcast. All hunting, all fitness, all the time. All right, Cody, how are you, buddy? Really good, really good. Good, we just had a little joke. I said, you got a glass of whiskey handy, and you said, uh, what was your response? Uh, not yet. <laughs> not, not quite five o'clock. Not quite five o'clock. So you're on the same time zone as I am then, right? Because Alberta is directly above Arizona. I'm well, not directly, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Two o'clock here right now. And you are in the middle of, you just on a break from a hunt going on right now? Yeah, we just, uh, we kind of got done with a few Canadian residents that we took this fall since no one could get across the border from the U.S. And now we have the minister's tag holder for mule deer starting with us here tomorrow so minister well let me let me back up a little bit and just introduce the listeners to who you are 
Um, this is Cody Cassidy, which you probably already know this, Cody, and I don't know if it's your real name or if it's a you know your stage name or not, but it's probably the coolest name in the industry. Like <laughs> Cody Cassidy, that's just a yeah. tough. It's a tough name. So is that is that what you were born with? Yeah, that was what I was born with. And people that I don't know, if I tell them my name, they'll look at me and, well, you got to be a cowboy. <laughs> well, actually, matter of fact, I am a cowboy. <laughs> yeah, and I wrestle steers to the ground. So yeah. you're born, you're born yeah. and named Cody Cassidy. There is no way you're getting out of life without wrestling something, horses, steers, <laughs> yeah. bulls, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you got to do something Western, that's for sure. Yeah, so tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're born and raised, where you're at right now, and, and then uh, just got a bunch of questions for you. I've been, I've been excited about doing this podcast uh, for a long time since I started podcasting. I read, we've you know, kind of played a little bit of phone tag there for a while, but I'm excited to have you on. So yeah. kind of tell the listeners who you are. Well, I was been born and raised um, in Denelda, Alberta, which is kind of East Central Alberta, in between Edmonton and Calgary. And I, I live about 10 miles away from where I grew up and have spent pretty much my whole life in, in that area. And it's a, a great area to grow up in as far as, you know, hunting and fishing goes. And that's, you know, just from a young age, that's kind of why I got into hunting because it was everywhere around me. So obviously did your dad hunt kind of take you out as a young boy, getting you into what did the hunting look like uh, back when you were yeah, just a kid? So, I mean, when I was a kid, my day consisted of, I couldn't wait till school was done to get on the bus, to get home, to jump in with dad and, and go hunt whitetails was kind of what we, we started with. And, uh, you know, and then dad started going to the mountains with some friends of his in the, probably the mid eighties they'd pack in and hunt elk back when our elk herds in the mountains were, were really strong. And, you know, they just, whatever year, one of them or a couple of them would come back with the, with the bull elk. And I can remember just as a young kid, I couldn't wait to go out there, you know, and get into the mountains and, and hunt or just, just be out there. And I can remember being pretty upset every time dad would leave because I was pretty certain that I should be going along with them but <laughs> my time my time come eventually and you know that's kind of what led me into spending so much time in the mountains and and getting into outfitting and and stuff and being out there so when you say the mountains so Denalda where you live now is that more of a plains area yeah so we're we're kind of parkland country you know so on the edge of farmland and on the edge of ranching country um, you go just a little bit north of us, and there's lots of really good farmland. And then you go east and south of us, and then you get into, you know, big, wide-open um, ranch lands, you know, where it's just all prairie grass, and guys run lots of cows and cattle and, and stuff like that. And, like, game-wise, where you live, because you, you got some hunting lodges there, and I know you guys do a lot of hunts out of there. What kind of game are you talking about where you live, Denalda area? I mean, you got antelope. Do you have antelope? I know you got unbelievable yeah, mule deer and whitetail. Yeah, we've got a, a small herd of antelope. So they're about the farthest antelope, you know, in north in North America. Um, they're right, uh, right beside the house there. We've got a, a resident herd of about 100, 150 around the, um, the, it's the mine, we call it, where they, they, used to strip mine for coal to, to burn in the power plant. And that's kind of been shut down now, the strip mining, but all the, you know, the barren 
land is still there, you know, as far as no trees and just kind of prairie and the antelope have moved into there. So we do have antelope. And then, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, it was all whitetail mule deer. And at one time our mule deer really weren't that good because it was just a over-the-counter tag for residents. So you can imagine how, you know, that went. There wasn't wasn't much for big mule deer around growing up as a kid. And then by the time I was, I don't know, I guess probably 10, 12 in there is when they first put the mule deer on draw. And then from there, you know, things got really good as far as mule deer go once they started limiting the hunt to, you know, less people. And it's been really good since then. And then it was about around that time that I can remember the first moose, we call them prairie moose, moving into the area. I remember doing a deer drive with a bunch of my uncles and cousins, my dad and some friends from town. And, and that used to kind of be our job was to beat the bush as young kids and, and chase them out to the shooters. And I can remember going through there and jumping two huge bull moose in front of me. And I can, I can still remember it just plain as day. And uh, that was my first experience with moose. And now obviously we've got, I mean, there's tons of moose around home and, you know, all through the, the parkland prairie units throughout alberta and now we're just starting to see elk come into the area too so we're every year we see a few more elk and in certain spots out here in the farmland country there's a lot of elk um, but they're slowly starting to you know disperse everywhere whether that's a good thing or a bad thing the ranchers probably think it's a bad thing because the elk do do a lot of damage as far as you know crop damage and stuff like that goes but if you're a hunter, it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, well, you're ex- you're explaining a total paradise. I'm a little bit jealous. Yeah. You guys, you guys get hunting that's just out of this world. No, so for you guys that are residents, I don't know what if you call it residents or however you however you refer to it as up there. But are you allowed to hunt the elk, the moose, and all that? You got to buy tags. You got to do draw. How does that work for you guys up there? Yeah, so most of the areas out here and and the units around home our draw you know the only thing that's general is whitetail you can just go get a tag every year um, a lot of these units out here are general for bow for mule deer you can just go buy a tag and and you, you have two months to to shoot a mule deer with a bow which i i see in the future that they're probably going to put that on draw because they have put a few units on draw already just because the bow hunters nowadays are getting to be a lot more proficient than what they used to be so I think the the success ratio is a lot higher, you know, than what it was, say, 15, 20 years ago. So I would imagine eventually that'll be on draw too, but as of right now, it's not. So, I mean, that's good. And then uh, the moose all throughout these areas out here, that's all draw, and that can take anywhere from six to 10 years to draw a tag. But it's a, a, a very sought-after tag. I mean, you're the success rate is virtually a hundred percent and lots of big bulls too. So that's a really good hunt. And then the elk with archery, you can just about hunt them anywhere in Alberta on a general tag through the archery season. And that's really through the prime rut. And then for rifle, most of the areas are draw and, you know, you're looking at anywhere from four to six years for a, for a tag for an elk around well, here. Well, we'll talk about your outfitting business because I want to. I'm interested on how that kind of works, and and then hopefully more people, you know, when these knuckleheads 
running our government, your government, I don't even know what the parliament, I don't know what you call it up there in our government. <laughs> you know, I, I, where I'm sitting right now, Cody, I'm sitting in my back deck because the cleaning ladies are in my house cleaning. My wife's like, oh, you had a podcast at two? I'm like, yeah, she goes, cleaning ladies are coming at two. I'm like, oh, all right. I'll sit outside, which I overlook a golf course. And as, as you were talking, you know, we were yeah, kind of joking at the beginning. I'll, I'll, I, I saw these I'll golfers. It's a lot warmer there than it is here. Oh, it is. It's it's probably uh, 70s right now, but a bunch of golfers just drove by and they're all wearing masks. And I'm like, what are you? You're outside, you knuckleheads. Get those off. <laughs> I shouldn't I say that, but whatever. So <laughs> as a young Cody, what, uh, what did you, did you start? rifle hunting right away did you pick up a bow because i know you do both but what did, how did you how did you start out hunting well actually in alberta you can start bow hunting before you can start rifle hunting and why that is i have no idea but that's our rules anyway so back when i was old enough to hunt or just started you could bow hunt you know with the guardian at age 12 so i my mom and dad got me a bow for christmas when i was probably I'm guessing 10 or 11 years old and I shot it. That's all I did was shoot that bow. And then as soon as I was old enough to, you know, to go hunt and get a, a tag, I was off and running. And the first year I, I hunted at 12 years of age, I shot a whitetail and a mule deer with my bow, um, you know, a decent, a decent whitetail buck, probably 130 inch whitetail. And then I shot a, you know, a hundred and, uh, 140 inch mule deer that had a six inch drop time, which I thought that was the coolest thing ever shooting a mule deer with a, with a drop time. Yeah. And especially at, obviously I've learned, especially at 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. You know, and most of, I mean, both of them deer I shot basically right beside the house. Um, dad, he, he grows a lot of hay for the cattle and stuff. And there was, I remember there was a new hay field right beside our house and there was, it was full of whitetail and mule deer. So it wasn't like I had to venture very far to, to go find a deer. And, uh, and there was lots of deer back. So those years we were having lots of mild winters and it was nothing to go for a drive in the evening and see 300 deer, 400 deer everywhere. So it was a, a good time to get into hunting. That's for sure. Wow. And, uh, was that spot and stock mostly when you grew up? I mean, you, I, I don't know your terrain, like by where you're at, where you run. Well, actually, I, I've got a good story. I, I built a tree stand by myself or kind of with the help of my brother. <laughs> and we, we built this tree stand out of old kind of reclaimed lumber that dad had pulled off of fences in the feedlot. And we thought it was more than safe and adequate. And I can remember one night, sitting in the tree stand with my brother and uh where i was leaning up against a board it was kind of our you know our security board whatever you want to call it from us falling out of the tree stand and yeah it broke and i fell out of the tree stand of course back then there's no such thing as safety harnesses or that we knew of and i i'm guessing the tree stand was about 15 feet in the air and i fell out of it and landed right square on my back and that's the one and only time I've ever had the wind knocked out of me. And it was a good hour and a half before I could get a full breath of air. And I could just remember falling out of the tree and my brother looking over the edge at me as I was falling through the air. So since then I've practiced a little more tree stand safety. And thank God it didn't, thank God it didn't hurt me. I mean, other than, you know, just body aches from falling 15 feet out of a, out of a tree and landing square on your back but uh no broken bones or anything just 
a lot of wind that got knocked out of me. <laughs> I can imagine you and your brother both thinking like, who's going to tell dad? Who, who's going to tell dad what we did here? Oh, that's... I don't think... I don't think I told anyone because I can remember crawling into the house and crawling in my bedroom so I could lay down in my bed <laughs> somewhere soft. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, so that's around 12, 13 years of age. When did you get into rodeo? Like, is that something you guys were, you, were you born into that as well? Yeah. So, I mean, dad rodeoed for a long time, for over 20 years. So, you know, growing up as kids around somebody that, that rodeos, you know, we were going to rodeos all the time when we were kids, and, you know, we're always around ranching and and stuff like that so it was i think it was just natural for us to progress into you know into being cowboys and and you know getting into rodeo more so my brother than me i i remember curtis him being like he was all cowboy that was it where myself i was more of a hunter and i loved you know just going i mean when i was young my remember my grandpa my dad would take me down to the fishing hole drop me off when I was 10 years old at daylight and they'd come back at dark and pick me up. And that's where I wanted to be on the weekends all summer long, you know, where Curtis, he wanted to go ride horses and, you know, go treat yearlings in the pasture and, and stuff like that, where I wasn't so much interested in that stuff. I was more interested in just the hunting and fishing. And then as I got older and then I kind of, started taking to it a little bit more and, and got more interested in it. And then, you know, obviously once I started, I, you know, I hated losing. So then I started putting 110% in and, and giving it my all. And, and, you know, it's, it's been really good ever since. Yeah. You guys have a really successful, I don't know about your dad, but I know your brother's very successful. I know you're, you've been very successful. It's kind of funny when we did come up and moose hunt with you, which I'll tell a bunch of those stories in a little bit. Um, I knew you guys were tough. I knew you guys were tough cowboys. There's no question about it. Then we started, you started going around like Evan, he's a steer wrestler. Matt, he was, you know, a former Canadian Bronc champion. You're a steer wrestler, high level. Your brother's a steer wrestler, world champion, I, all these different things. I'm like, these guys are like, they're way cool, way cooler than, you know, I think, <laughs> I think it's envious. People are very envious of like your lifestyle. Although when I come up there and I hunted, I realized how much tougher you guys are than me. Like you never wore gloves and I froze the whole time. I'm like, gosh, Cody is so freaking tough. I was like jealous. I come back like I got to do more to toughen up. Like I am a city slick and wuss boy. I think, <laughs> I think it's all relative to where you, where you live. You get used to, I know I went on a muskox hunt a couple of years ago and I think I'm fairly tough as far as cold weather goes. Well, I'm not nearly as tough as the, the natives up there in the Inuit. <laughs> They literally didn't barely wear no clothes, and it was minus forty, and they all had frostbite all over their faces, and and they just thought it was just another day at the office. So, yeah, I think it's all relative to where you live and where you spend your time. That's that's what you're you're used to. Which you could take us down to Arizona in the middle of summer, and we'd all melt, and you could probably go do a half an hour workout outside in you know 110 degree heat, and it would kill us. <laughs> Well, I remember the, the second year we were up there, you went back and you resupplied and you came back. It had been, you still had another three and a half hours to go to get to the main camp. You stopped where we had already moved back towards the, you know, the trailer, three hours or whatever. And I was kind of sick. I got sick the last few days of that hunt. And I remember just never being able to get warm. I was so freaking cold and in, in just in my, you know, in my mind, I'm battling it because I had the chills and you come rolling in with a string of horses. You got a ball cap on and no gloves. 
and then you're undoing those boxes, like the food boxes, and they're full of snow because it snowed the whole way. Like I, don't, I just wanted to go in my tent and suck my thumb. Like I literally, I told Damien, I told Damien, I'm like, I'm, they're just on another level. But you know, I, I, I did try to, I tried to, uh, I tried to give myself some credit. I said I did leave like seven days ago. I left 105 degrees, and now it's 20 and snowing. So I didn't have any time to acclimate. Yeah, it's uh, out there. You just kind of you go and you get the job done because you never know where you're you're headed to, and you you think you're gonna you try and plan ahead. And okay, we got to be leaving the the horse trailer at this time to get into camp in the daylight. And I don't know what it is, but I seem to spend more time out there traveling in the darkness than I do in the daylight. Daylight for hunting, dark. That's for traveling. <laughs> that's well, you did. Motto. You you got to our camp at ten. It had been dark for three hours, and you sat around our camp and ate for a little bit. And you're like, okay, I gotta go. And it was another three and a half hours. Three hours, three and a half on horseback to the next camp. I remember you leaving. I looked at Damien. I'm like, I couldn't do it. I, I just, I couldn't do it. Like one little headlamp and a bunch of horses and one little trail. So it's, yeah, that was awesome. I think us, go ahead. A lot braver out there when you've got a, a horse underneath you. I don't know if I'd, I'd really want to do that trek by myself in the dark, but if you've got a 2000 pound animal underneath you, you feel a lot braver anyways. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. So going back to the rodeo type stuff, I was kind of going here. Like, what's are you still into rodeo? I mean, every once in a while you'll put on Instagram, you'll be doing a steer wrestling and stuff like that. And and then how's your brother doing? Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, he was really working to get up there. So how is that all going? Yeah. No, I mean this year was obviously a lot different with with COVID. All of our rodeos up here in Canada were shut down. Um, so this year is really the first year that I never I never competed at a rodeo all year so this is the first year i've ever had off in the last 20 years basically and uh curtis he went down south to the down to the states and and he rodeo down there to what rodeos there was and he made the national finals rodeo again and which that's going on right now in arlington it's normally in vegas but they're they weren't allowed to have no crowds or anything in vegas so they moved it over to arlington to the global life field where the rangers play and that's that's where he's at as we speak i think he just competed in round six last night so he's got four more rounds to go wow that's pretty cool that's pretty cool yeah yeah, so, yeah uh, this year was pretty pretty quiet on the rodeo front but um i'm i'm ready to go again i'm i'm feeling fresh and and uh anxious you know the the year off has has kind of made me want it even more and you know i'm at the age where i've got a few more good years left I think. And, uh, you know, I'd like to go for another four or five years, God willing. And, and, uh, you know, compete to the best of my ability. We've got some really good horsepower right now, which is three quarters of the battle. So hopefully come, come here next for this coming up spring, everything kind of settles down and we can get back to normal and hopefully we can start going to some rodeos again and normal life. <laughs> yeah, I sure hope so. So how old are you right now? 39. I'll be 40 in, uh, in June to, to me, not knowing a single thing about rodeo. Um, that seems like you're getting to that upper age group. Cause I mean, you're not just, you know, English and Western showmanship. You're out there wrestling steers. <laughs> yeah. Like how long can a yeah, guy, how long can a guy go for? Well, I mean, we're definitely, I know last year or like in 2019, when Curtis and I made the Canadian finals, we were the two oldest steer wrestlers competing but you know steer wrestling is an event that's 
it's not so much a speed event, you know, as far as moving your legs, it's more, you know, power technique, um, stuff like that. And obviously, you know, agility, stuff like that comes into play, but it's not as much as it is in some of the other events, like the riding events and stuff like that. So my dad, he competed professionally until he was 48 years old and competed at the Canadian finals rodeo the last time when he was 47. So, you know, we've, we've still definitely got some years left in us. If we want to go, I think, I think a lot of people's desire um, goes as they get to be that age more than their ability. You know, you, you still have to have the desire to want to be there and compete because you're, you're competing against guys a lot younger than you. So I think it takes more work, you know, as far as for me, it takes more time in the gym, you know, just more, more being more prepared than, you know, when you're 25, you can go out and party all night and get up and go on two hours of sleep and you're just fine where that doesn't work for me no more. (laughs) I need a lot more sleep and I need to be prepared a lot more when I, when I do go to the rodeos to compete. So, you know, I, I would say I, I'd like to compete till I'm 45, 46, somewhere in there. And, and if, if I can go longer and I still want to keep going, you know, I'll, I'll definitely go longer. Man, it's just mesmerizing to me. So are you still doing CrossFit? I haven't as much, not since this, obviously since COVID come about, they, they shut our gym down back in March and I quit going then. And I really, I'll be honest, I haven't done much of anything other than, uh, you know, I went out and I did a lot of sheep hunting this year. So that was a lot of good exercise, but I can definitely tell I need to, I need to get back to the gym, but now we're, we're just starting Sunday here. We're going into another four week lockdown. They've shut down all of our gyms again, um, all the restaurants, everything. So, I mean, basically we're right back to square one than from what we were back in March. So yeah, yeah pretty, pretty the new year. Things will get back to normal and, and get back at it. Yeah. They're a little bit off on that 14 days to lower the curve, aren't they? From March when they first started. Yeah. yeah didn't do nothing. Uh, knuckleheads. Knuckleheads. <laughs> What's actually, uh, my brother, he had to get tested before he went to um, Arlington to the national finals rodeo. And he tested positive for the antibodies. So he's, he had it at some point and I'm pretty sure I had it too. Cause I know when we were down at the um, Western hunting exposition in Salt Lake city, both of us got sick as soon as we got home from there and all the symptoms of COVID is what we had. I mean, it wasn't that bad. It was just kind of like a bad cold for us both, but I'm sure if I went and got tested, I'd have the, the same antibodies that, that he has. So at some point somewhere we, we picked it up. Yeah, my wife just said to me today, she goes, I, I, I imagine about Christmas time we're going to get it. And I said, why? And she goes, because it's closing in all around us. And literally it is. It's yeah. It's, and and yeah, sooner I mean, or later, I mean, I'd just rather get it and get it over with and just move yeah, on. I mean, I mean, it's going to go through. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, how do, you, how do you stay away from the common cold? Well, you don't. It's basically, if it starts coming around, you get it, you deal with it, and you move on. You know, so it's just, it's inevitable, I think, that it's, it's going to go through the, the vast majority of the population. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm banking on my Arizona cold pool therapy to keep me, keep my immune system going <laughs> strong. I started doing that oh, again. I'll I, I tell you, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I know, you know, athletes years ago, you know, the ice bath used to be the big thing. And then, you know, new technology has gotten, came out and you don't see it as much anymore. But Damien, that you met, that, that you know, that we hunted yep. with a couple of times. 
um, when he came, when we were, we were hunting one time and he was talking, I told him I was starting to sit in an ice bath. He goes, man, when I played baseball, he goes, after every home game, I sat for 15 minutes in an ice tub and had a beer. And in his 19-year career, he was never on the injured reserve other than when he rolled his ankle playing pinball or ping pong or something like that, but never was injured <laughs> as a catcher at six foot five, six foot four, whatever he is. And so I've been getting back in my pool. And right Pretty now good. it's, yeah, right now my pool is 51 degrees. And this morning I did 10 minutes. I've been doing seven. And then my CrossFit coach is like, you got to go 10. So I did 10 minutes. That makes a huge difference. And when you start studying like cold therapy, cold water therapy, what it does, it really, really boosts your immune system, really helps your body to adapt to stress yeah. a lot better, all physical, um, environmental, emotional, every kind of stress um, possible. So mm-hmm. I get in it every day. I know it's Arizona oh, yeah. and people think, oh, it's warm pool. Well, not in the wintertime. That pool is, it's cold, not ice cold, but 51 degrees is cold. Yeah. It'll take your breath away if you jump in. <laughs> it does. I wish I would have been doing it. You know, I can't do it when I was coming up by you because it was still September and still my pool was probably 90 degrees. So I couldn't even get prepared for the cold up there, but Anyway, I remember after my one hunt, you'd, I didn't know you were crossfitting. And then I, you had messaged something probably on Instagram or messaged back and forth. And I think it was right around the, the regional time or the open time. And you're like, what'd you get in this score? What'd you get in that yep. score? And I, you said something to me like, oh, I got to go. I got to go harder, something to catch that score. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you wrestle steers to the ground. Like I always, I just keep thinking like, I don't want to keep pumping that up, but like the size of your hands and forearms, I'm like, I just don't want to get grabbed by you. Like I might, I might be able to run a little farther in a workout, but you grab a hold of me. I'm done. (laughs) It's crazy. I know when I started going to CrossFit, you know, that was in about 2015 is when I started going and it, I remember when I first started the first, you know, two, three weeks, I, I really couldn't grasp why people wanted to do this. But like anything, the longer you start doing it, you know, it, it just, it, it really had become an addiction. And I went for, through 2000, for the later part of 2015, 2016, 17 and 18, I was as, as religious to it as I could get, you know, I, I lived 35 minutes from the gym. So it was, it was hard for me to be there every day, but I got where I was going four or five days a week. And it, it made a huge difference. definitely in my my rodeo performance you know it it got to where I was so strong mentally and I mean obviously physically I was getting a lot stronger but I think it helped me more mentally than it did anything just because it felt like I was putting the work in that other guys weren't doing and I expected myself to win and whether that was what made it it better but 2015 and 16 were two of the best years I ever had rodeo on and I mean, I had lots of other good years, but those two were kind of almost standouts where, you know, in steer wrestling, it's hard to place that. Usually if you make the finals, you place that 30 to 40% of the rodeos and that's on the high side. And both of those years, I was over 50%, you know, <clears throat> at the rodeos that I placed at. So it, I, I, I can't say enough good things about CrossFit. It's, it was really good for me. Yeah. I, I have to say, I tell everybody, you know, everybody's got their own style. Some like it, some don't, I don't, I don't really care what people like and don't like. I mean, not in a bad way. I just, people do what they do and that's, that's good. But I think for me personally, it's probably done more for my overall conditioning than any other fitness way, you know, that I've trained. I've trained with kettlebells. I love kettlebells. I still incorporate them a ton, but you know, uh, there's just a little bit more, you know, when I was training, training on my own, I wouldn't incorporate running into it. Why wouldn't the world would I want to run 
or if I was just doing old school <laughs> bodybuilding, there was no conditioning. And, you know, most of the hunts that I do, it's kind of goofy to say, well, I just trained for hunting. But that's, per I mean, honestly, that's why I train. I just, I want to stay in good shape. I want to be a good example. Uh, you know, I want to show my wife that yeah. I care about myself and be a good, good example of my kids. And when I put a backpack on my pat on my back and hike after animals, I just don't want to wuss out. I want to go farther, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. It's really a lot of, a lot of things that CrossFit, you know, has it directly related to what you do when you're out hunting, you know, you're either, you're going really hard or you're, you're packing heavy loads, you know, all that stuff. It's, it is, it's a, it, it's a great thing as, as far as I think rodeo hunting, all that, it goes hand in hand. But like you said, there are a lot of people that, that don't like it and, you know, each of their own, everybody's got their own style, their own, you know, own things that they like to do but you know i'm 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 high on the crossfit yeah so let's go to the guiding so when did that take place so i didn't mention this but you are owner operator of big knife outfitters in alberta um you have a yep. world-class literally world-class operation and i've been there twice and we'll talk a little bit about that but how did you get into that you know you grow up you're in rodeo you're hunting non-stop how did you get into the the guiding slash outfitting so I, I guess the first, my first kind of initiation to it was I went out um, elk hunting with, with a good friend of ours, you know, at the time that he had bighorn sheep permits and we went out there to hunt elk out of his camp. And I was pretty young. I want to say I was about 12 or 13 when we went in there that fall. And, you know, I, I just, I loved everything about it. You know, what, you know, if you're, if you're into hunting, what more of a dream job could you ever have than, you know, making hunting your, your living and your livelihood. So that was kind of my first, you know, introduction to it. And it kind of took off from there. I, after that, I'd go out every year in August and have Glenn um, set up his camps for his bighorn hunts. And then I guess when I was 17, I went up to the Northwest Territories. I took work experience the first semester of of grade 12, I guess. So I left, um, July 1st or somewhere right about in there and flew up to Norman Wells and then went out and worked with, uh, Harold Grindy with, uh, Gaina river outfitters. So I spent the summer out there and that, that, you know, was, it was a wealth of knowledge for me that I, you know, all the experience that I gained, you know, I learned how to pack horses and, you know, obviously I knew how to ride horses and stuff and saddle a horse, but, I really didn't know nothing about the packing and, you know, them, I spent three months up there that summer, um, you know, taking dull sheep hunters out and just wrangling for them guys. And, and then when I got home from there, then I, I graduated later on that year. And then I basically went straight out to, to working for Glenn Wilsey and his bighorn camp and same thing kind of started out wrangling there for the first couple of years. And then I got turned loose with bighorn hunters after that. And I believe I was out there for about eight years. And then in about the seventh, eighth year, I, um, a guy down in Southern Alberta wanted me to get some, uh, some archery mule deer hunters. And I took those out. And then that was kind of the, the initiation or the start of our, our outfitting around home, we, we started buying some permits and then just kind of snowballed from there. And we just slowly gained more and more permits and just kind of involved or evolved into what it is today. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, you just say, Hey, I was, you know, I was just wrangling for some sheep hunters. I don't think people really know how hard that is. 
Like I watch you guys work and yeah. how much work you go through up at, you know, yeah, there's, Oh man. It is a lot of work. You know, when you, you start looking after 15, 20 head of horses, you know, just to bring all the horses in and take the hobbles off and put the halters on and tie them up. You know, it's a, it's a big job, you know, and then moving camp and there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mechanics to it. And as you get more experience, you can, you start doing it a lot faster, just like anything, but it's still, there's just, there's a lot of stuff to do, a lot of stuff to remember, you know, there's just little things, but it, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a job. It's, it's not, there's lots of manual labor to it and lifting and, and all that. And sometimes dealing with cranky horses and all sorts of fun stuff. So give me a, uh, tell me what it's like the start of your season. You're getting ready and you got the, obviously got the wilderness hunts, you got the prairie hunts, you got hunts all over the place. Tell me what, like when your season starts and then like, what's that look like? I remember when I talked to you. So my first hunt with you was in 2017, Damien and I came and we talked early in the summer. And I think you were, you said something like, well, next weekend I'm going out and we're going to be back in there for a couple of weeks, setting camps up. And I'm like, whoa what am I getting myself into here? Like we're going to be back there setting camps up for a couple weeks. So what does that look like for you guys? Yeah. So, you know, usually about mid August we'll start. I'll, I've got some pasture rented where I keep all my mountain horses. So we'll go out there, we'll gather them all up, bring them home. And then I start putting shoes on them because um, they all need to have shoes on them before you, you head into the mountains. So that's usually, you know, a, a long two day process to get all of them, shod and, and ready so then as soon as they're all shod then we usually start taking camps and around you know around the 20th of august um there's just kind of a little lull in my rodeo season there where i don't have as many rodeos so usually we go out we'll spend you know anywhere from a week to 10 days out there in the mountains we'll set up usually a couple camps and then you know get the firewood all chopped and and ready so that's kind of prepared because that's a you know a fairly big job you have to do it when you just show up at camp with the hunters so get all that stuff done you know get the cots in everybody's tents and just just everything kind of organized so then when you you know you roll in there with your hunters everything's set up they can just you know plunk their stuff down the tent and and i have taken some hunters in to areas where you know we have to move a camp and set the tents up but it's it's a long day you know you're you're up at four or five in the morning and you move the you know tear the camp down pack the horses take it over there set everything back up i mean you're lucky to be in bed by midnight or one in the morning by the time it's all said and done so that's kind of why we we like to take the camp in ahead of time have everything all set up firewood chopped you know just everything organized and it just seems like everything runs a lot smoother then so and obviously once the the hunts are done you know the the camps are set up up there we'll come out um typically i used to do some archery mule deer the first of september but i don't do as many of those anymore just because i don't have as much time and then i've got a few rodeos to finish up there at the start of september and then it's right around the 15th of september that we head back in with the archery moose hunters to the into the wilmore you know so we're in there till the 23rd is the last day we come out you take a day to restock and then we go back in with the two rifle hunters you know right thereafter and then while we go in with the rifle hunters then curtis and usually cody rollage they're getting everything set up at home which is not a lot to set up but just kind of a few you know fine details at home for the prairie moose hunts and we take four guys at home for the prairie moose so then 
they look after those, um, they look after all those hunts. And then I look after the ones up in the Wilmore with the horses and, and usually around the first part of October, we're, we're done with those. And usually the guys at home are done with the, the prairie moose and, and we pack everything up, come out. We spend an extra couple of days packing up some extra camps, something like that. And, and we make our way to the mountains and come home. And then we do a couple of archery mule deer hunts down in Southern Alberta. And that's usually about the middle of October. And then that's about a 10 day process down there. And then we're back home and we get ready for the first November to start with all the rifle mule deer and white chill hunts. And that runs through the entire month of November to the 30th. And usually by the end of the month, we're sick of guiding and we're sick of hunting and everybody started to get grouchy. <laughs> we're all wrapped up and then we take about two days off and then everybody wants to come back and hunt again. <laughs> Man, that's, that's, I know that you can just rip through that, but uh, just the immense amount of work. So when you are moose hunting, how does that work? Like you have to buy an area. Am I, uh, you like buy the certain amount of permits and then nobody else is allowed that zone or however that is to hunt moose in that area? Is that well, the way that works? Similar. Um, so in Alberta, you can have a number of outfitters that work an area if they own a permit. In British Columbia, you, you buy the right to the whole area, so you'd be the only outfitter outfitting in that area, where in Alberta, it's all on a permit um, basis system. So, you know, say, like right now in the Wilmore, there's two archery, or sorry, four archery moose tags in that zone that I'm in, and there's two rifle moose, and I own all of them, but feasibly there could be six different outfitters working in there if they wanted to. I mean, you, you probably wouldn't do that because it you wouldn't be economical, but you know, you could, you know, by law have six different outfitters in there. One with, you know, each guy with their own permit, you know, typically it's, you know, the, all the bighorn sheep tags are, you know, in one outfitter's name and all the moose tags are in my name and, you know, a bunch of the deer permits in there are all, in, you know, to one outfitter, you know, they just kind of focus on one thing. What, uh, you have any sheep, uh, permits or do you, I, I thought I had heard you were getting into, you were trying to get some sheep. Permits. Yeah, we're, we just kind of, we just kind of wrapped up the last bit of our dealings with, uh, some sheep permits we're trying to buy. It looks like it's, it looks like it's going to be a go. There's still a, few more fine details to work out but it looks like for the start of 20 2022 we'll have a few sheep hunts to do and then 2023 we'll take over the whole area for the sheep permits not in the area that i have the most tags in but um an area that i'm really familiar with that i've you know hunted for 20 years myself so that's going to be our our next adventure. <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. So what's your favorite animal to, what's your favorite animal to outfit or guide? Outfit or guide, it would have to be moose. Um, I just, I can't get enough of the moose, you know, calling them and, you know, bringing them in to the close range. They put on such a good show. They're, they're really similar to an elk, I guess. Um, you know, I don't outfit for no elk. So, I mean, my experience with elk hunting in Alberta has been pretty much just with a rifle. So I've hardly ever called any elk. We're usually just out, you know, hunting in the mountains or somewhere and, and just find a bull and shoot him with a rifle. So it's not, you know, as technical. But the the moose are just, 
you know, the show that they put on time and time again, just amazes me. And they're such a massive animal. I mean, I've, I've literally been beside multiple hunters that they're shaking so bad when that moose comes in that, I mean, what, what more could you ask out of a game animal to give you that much of an adrenaline rush than a moose that makes you shake uncontrollably at, you know, when they're at 20 yards. So that's by, by far my favorite to hunt would be the moose. Man, I just remember, so 2017, Damien and I roll in, and and I remember you telling me when we talked a little prior to that, you're like, hey, this is more than anything physically. I remember you saying physically you'll be fine, but mentally it's a grind. And and I, I, I didn't really know what you're talking about, so I was training. Well, I wasn't training, but my daughter has a horse, so I was taking riding mm-hmm. lessons, and I thought, well, i got to get familiar. I'm not a horse guy. I, I don't really care for him, to be honest with you, because I'm not used to him. I've never, yeah. you know, I've never been around him. Yeah, and exactly. we jump on the, <laughs> I remember this, we parked the first year, 2017, we parked and we're getting all our stuff ready. And I remember looking out there and someone said, Damien said something, he goes, Hey, you know, there's black bears in here. I'm like, yeah, black bears. You're like, Oh yeah. Grizzlies too. And I'm like, well, I didn't know there's grizzlies here. Like it's another element. I'm, I'm not even used to bears anywhere. I hunt right now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> large, so, large amounts of grizzlies. <laughs> large amounts. And we get on the horse and I remember thinking, okay, we got a six-hour horse ride. This isn't going to be too bad. I've been preparing for it. It wasn't 45 minutes on that, and my butt was hurting already. I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> we got another five and a quarter hours yet, but we finally get there. But the first morning, we went with Rody. That was the guide you paired Damien and I up with. And we climbed yep. up on this hill. He, he split us up, and Damien went to the right, and I went down into this marsh. <clears throat> and, of course, I've never moose hunted before. I was so super excited, all prepared, and Rody said, okay, when I'm going to, you go stand by that point over there, but be a hunter. Like if that moose is coming in and he's coming way to your left or way to your right, be a hunter and get in, you get yourself in position. Like, don't just stand here. Cause I tell you, stand there and let it walk by you out of range. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I literally walked down there probably about a 300 yard walk <clears throat> and I get down there and I just start and put all my clothes on and he does his, you know, he's doing his moose call. And I reached down to grab my jacket to get it on because it was cool. It was that storm was starting to yes. blow, and it was cool. And I heard the roar, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, that couldn't that couldn't have been it already." And all of a sudden, that can't happen. Yeah, all of a sudden, I heard it again, and I'm like, "What in the world?" And all of a sudden, from 500 yards away, I see those big paddles coming through. And when you talk about being, you know, seeing some guys that get shook up, well, that bull came, and I thought I went to my left a little bit because he looked like he was going to skirt left. I should have stayed right where I was. He would have given me a 40-yard broadside shot. Well, he come yeah. straight on to me, and he's at 48 yards. And I got my bow up on my hip so I could keep it up, you know, arrow knocked. And I got my rangefinder in my hand. And I literally, I, Damien and I joke about this all the time. I was laughing at myself because as I'm standing there, my heartbeat out of my mouth was just like this. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm telling myself, I'm like, he's going to hear me. Like he's going to freak out because he can, and it was beating so hard that like air was coming out of my mouth. No lie. And then he ended up, the wind, you know, brushed me on the back of my head and, and he was gone. But that was un, I was absolutely hooked. Like that ginormous of an animal that close. And he was doing his, he was coming in for that big show you talk about. It was oh, just, yeah. it was hooked, hooked for life. And I just can't wait to get back there. But, uh, and we, yeah, and we yeah, will man. one day. And that's what. That's what's so addicting about it is that when they put on that show, it's just, it is, it's, it's really, literally it's second to none. I mean, I've, I've guided lots of bighorn hunters and I've hunted lots of sheep and I, 
I love hunting sheep and hunting bighorn sheep, you know, in particular. And it, it's a great rush, but it, the, I don't know, the, the heart stopping action is not like having a moose come into point blank range. I mean, if I see a huge ram, yeah, it'll make my heart skip a beat, but usually, you know, you got a big long hike ahead of you and you, it kind of, the adrenaline leaves your body by the time you get there where when that moose comes in, it's, it's, it's fast and furious. They're coming in, there's trees crashing and breaking and they're grunting. And I mean, it's just, it's a short burst of mass chaos. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's hard to explain to somebody that, you know, the sheer adrenaline rush that you get out of them moose coming into that close of a range. But once somebody's been there and they've experienced it, they're, they are, they're hooked. I mean, and pretty much all the guys that have come with me on that hunt up there, or even the hunt here at home on the prairie, they're, they don't ever want to come just once, you know, even guys that have, have killed moose are like, Oh, we, we got to come back again and do this. It's just, it's too much fun. You know, and it, it is, it, it's just such a rush. Well, not to mention you're hunting in probably some of the most picturesque country in the world. I mean, you're, oh, you're yeah. in, when it snowed that second day of our first hunt, and we went up to the top. We, we rode up to the top to overlook that one big uh, metal swamp, whatever you want to call it. I remember you yeah. and Evan coming down. It was like a it was like a a movie, an out west movie. You come riding down that hill on your horse, full speed. I, I, I mean, it was just amazing <laughs> watching the snow kick up. But Damien and I were taking pictures of it, and it didn't do it any justice. No picture did. It was just literally God's masterpiece. It was. It it's was. unbelievable when that sun come out that day it was and that that's probably one of the prettiest days i've ever been out there in the mountains was that i mean that wasn't a normal dump of snow what do we what do we have like three and a half feet of snow at the at the tents and yeah i mean it basically shut us down i mean it was it was beautiful but it wrecked our whole the rest of our hunt because it was it was literally it was too much snow i mean the the horses couldn't get at the grass and it was just it turned into a disaster, you know, and it, it was, we had great hunting up until that snowstorm. And then once that snowstorm hit, it basically put a, <laughs> put a large dampener on our, on our moose hunt. But you know, it's all part of the adventure. I mean, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hunting and you, you can't, you can't control the weather. And that was, yeah, that was a, that was an extreme storm that we, it was, over. you know, as I'm standing next to Damien, cause Rody took us out, you know, we weren't going to try to, we we're going to try to switch camps, but we just got snowed in. I mean, you really couldn't even find the trail. So we just, no, you know, Rody's like, well, let's hunt. And I, I kind of knew, like, I don't think it's going to be good. We could kind of all see it, but you, like you said, you can't control the weather. You just go do the best you can. But as I'm standing next to Damien and he's six foot five and the snow was up to his mid quad, you know, it's up to about my chest. <laughs> you know, I'm like, our horses can't even get through it. But the funny part yeah, was, know. you know, the, I don't know if you remember him, but he was that, he was that young, younger guy. He was younger than I was. He had that cleaning company. He was there. It was Damien Nye and then the dentist and that other yeah. guy. And his, his, he brought his rain gear in that day. He's like, do you guys like that Kuyu stuff? And I'm like, yeah, it seems to work pretty good. He's like, cause he had some old Sitka. He's like, cause this Sitka stuff is crap. And it was like a sponge. <laughs> it was so heavy and waterlogged. He was so cold and miserable. It was so I that's still, I still talk to him occasionally and he wants to come and do the, the, the prairie moose. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what he thought he was booking when he booked the hunt. <laughs> Like, well, I, I thought that I booked the prairie hunt. I said, no, you booked the northern horse hunt. He's like, I didn't want to come up here on horses. 
Well, if you remember, we're having dinner. Damien and I joke about this all the time. So we're eating dinner in your cook tent that night. And I think I asked you a question like, so, um, Cody, about your gentleman's hunt. And what what's his name? What's that guy's name? Nate. Nate. His head snapped up like it was a tip up. And he's like, what are you talking about, a gentleman's hunt? And he looked at us and you're, and you're like, yeah, the hunt out of the... Uh, out of the lodges, you know, where we drive around and drink whiskey. And he's like, what the bleep am I doing out here on a horse 25 miles back in the mountains? Like, he just didn't, he couldn't believe this is the hunt he was on. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's still been calling me. He wants to come on that hunt, but we're, we're booked out so far at home that he just, it hasn't worked out. He's just kind of waiting, you know, hoping for a cancellation or something so he can come sooner. But it's, uh, yeah. I don't, that's, that's one guy I don't think we'll get on the Northern moose hunt again with horses. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. I, I, I remember after that first, that first year, Damien and I, we went back to the hotel and whatever, whatever town that was, I forget back where we drove to grand cash, grand cash. We went, it's funny. We went to the hotel room and in uh, showered then into the hot tub and then back into the shower. And I remember you know, Damien, he's just like, this ain't for the faint of heart. I mean, it was tough with all that snow. We got cold. Yeah. I wasn't completely prepared. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't really know what to prepare for. I prepared as best I could based on, you know, everything that I knew, but with that much snow, it just, you know, it hindered my hands and stuff. So like, I'm like, I don't know if I'd ever oh, do this yeah. again. It's, it's tough. Well then two weeks later, you're like, Hey, I got two openings for next year. I'm like, Damien, you in? He's like, I'm in just like what you said about your guides are done. And then two days later, they want to get back out hunting and same with hunting. Like, you go through yeah, a tough hunt. It's kind of miserable because of weather. And then all of a sudden you're done. You're like, what am I doing? I got to go back. Like I felt like I failed. Yeah. And then man, the next year was just unbelievable. Both killed moose and had an incredible yeah. adventure. Got it. Got it done. I mean, it would have been, might have made a little, little more sweet if we, we would have got lucky and, and killed that, uh, giant one, that giant, but he was, he was a giant for, for good reason because he wasn't he wasn't wasn't dumb <laughs> no 146 yards 146 yards the closest i could get to him i think that was the same yeah. one and he pushed the one that that i shot away and you know i'm an opportunistic hunter and took my opportunity and filled it but i, I definitely want to come back so what did you do this year if you're not able to bring people from out of uh, out of canada in did you still fill up with just canadians no we ended up we didn't take uh i i sold a lot of the mule deer hunts around home, those were kind of seemed like they were a, a hot item. Everybody wanted to come mule deer hunting, but no one really wanted to pay me the money for what I needed to get out of the moose hunt to make it, you know, financially stable for me to, to spend all the money to go up there and set all the camps up and have all the help. So we ended up, we didn't hunt anything up there this year. So the, our outfitter association, they made a deal with the government they deferred all of our tags. So all the tags that we didn't use this year, we can now use them over the next five years. Um, I think there are some restrictions in some zones. So my moose hunts up there, I can use one, one extra moose tag a year. So feasibly next year I could take, uh, I could take five archery hunters, but the archery is not going to work too good for me because I can't, I can't, I can't accommodate that many guys at once. Just, you know, the logistics with horses and, you know, getting everybody around. It's just it's too many people in the camp at one time. So I'll probably just scrap them four that I lost this year and 
and just have to, you know, I'll maybe lease them out to somebody if they want to do a quad hunt, you know, out along the highway or something like that. But the rifle hunts, you know, I'm going to take three guys in there next year, God willing, that we can get some some U.S. clients up, and then three guys the following year. So that'll use up the two um, rifle permits that I deferred from this year. So that's literally the bulk of your business is all U.S. clients. Oh, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll probably, you know, this year was, it, it had its perks, you know, so we, we probably will take a few more Canadians now because them guys that did come this year, they had a really good time and we, we shot some, some great deer around home. Um, like we shot a 200 inch whitetail this year. We shot two mule deer over 200, one that was 212. So we had a, a really good year. So I think it kind of opened the eyes of a few of them Canadian residents that normally would never think of coming with us that, you know, there's some, some great opportunities, you know, as far as hunting goes in Alberta for them. Wow. Well, I would recommend your camp to anybody. I mean, not just do you have phenomenal hunting, but you got phenomenal horses, guides, wranglers, your food. I was thinking about it today. I'm like, you know, normally when I'm on a backpack hunt or, or a harder hunt, you know, you come out and you're like, man, I just want a cheeseburger or a pizza. Like you're starving for good food. I, there's no way we could have ate better than what we ate in your camp. I mean, we had dessert every day, lasagna. Bighorn sheep that you cooked was probably by far yeah. one of the best meats I've ever eaten. I, I've never tasted sheep before. That was incredible. Yeah, it really is. I mean, bighorn sheep or doll sheep, any sheep, you know, wild sheep that's, that's taken earlier on in the season is is great. I wouldn't say it's, it's not the best meat once they're, they're rutting, but it's, when they're before the rut, you know, early season in, in August, early September, it's, it's great meat. And it, it really, it, it doesn't taste like, you know, normal mutton. It's got a, it's got its own taste. I mean, you can, you can taste the sheep taste in there, but it's, it's a lot milder than a, than a, you know, a mutton that you'd eat at the restaurant or, or whatever. But it, yeah, it is really good. Yeah. But that's kind of, you know, kind of motto out there. We want to, I mean, I, if I don't like it, I'm not going to feed it to to the hunters. And, you know, my mom, she was a great cook. Her still is a great cook. And, you know, so I grew up eating really good food. So I think that's part of the reason that, you know, I expect to eat good meals while we're out there. Because it, it's really, a, it's not, it doesn't take no more effort to cook a good meal than it does to cook a crappy one. <laughs> so it, uh, you know, it's just kind of been our, our philosophy. We'll, we'll go out there, work hard, eat good meals, you know, hunt hard and you know we kind of leave the rest up to you know to the hunting gods you know you're gonna you're gonna have some success and then there's gonna be hunts where you go in there and, and you don't kill it's you know you're it's one of the harder hunts to do because you're you're on horses you're calling a moose so if you know you get some days that it's really windy you're just you're not going to call a moose because they can't hear you so as long as the, the weather's cooperating out there we we usually have a, a really good success rate the a couple of the years that we had a poor success rate was it was all due to weather, you know, whether there was that snowstorm that we got ourselves into that year with you and Damien, or one year we had a, just a week of terrible wind and the wind just makes it virtually impossible to call the moose in. So remember the kind of the two things you try and stay away from. Yeah. Well, I've been known to every hunt I go on, bring either horrible rain or horrible snow. So I, it's just kind of normal to me every time we Damien and I hunt together. He's like, can you believe this? And I look at him like, well, of course. This is just what happens when I go hunting. But I think like if I could give 
um, any listener that's ever going to go do any kind of hunt like that, and hopefully someone will go up and hunt with you, a bunch of people will go up and hunt with you, is my second year, I when we, we came back out in 2018, all I kept telling myself was and just enjoy every moment of the like the process. It's kind of like you know building a business or sports. You know you want to enjoy all the embrace the suck, all the you know all the famous taglines people use, but just to enjoy even some of the not so. You ride on a horse two and a half hours and it's cold out just to enjoy it because it's as yeah. an outdoorsman you're in it not just to try to kill something. I mean that's obviously that's a great part of it, but you're in it for that adventure and. When I'm going yeah, exactly. flying all the way up to you, sitting on a horse and doing a horseback hunt, I want I want an adventure, and I wanted to. I would tell anybody that enjoy it all, even the bad weather, the good weather, the hunt, success, not success. I mean, it's just all these memories that Damien and I are nonstop sharing pictures of that hunt. We have them. I mean, I can't tell you how many times just in the middle of the day I'll get a message from Damien. It'll be him when he had some old birch bark or something from up there on his top lip, and he looked like kind of a Mexican guy and we laugh about it i mean just all the good adventures that yeah. we, that we had up there was just it's priceless it really is but and the, yeah, and moose yeah, moose is delicious too oh yeah it is really good you can't it's tough to beat moose meat i mean there's i think elk meat you can rank it right up there but i think the well moose meat there's there's not an animal in north america you're gonna get more pounds of meat off other than a moose yep so what do your deer hunts Hunt look there. like what, uh, what are your, cause I know they're like a, I was really interested in those. I mean, you guys shoot, obviously you just mentioned you shoot some giant mule deer, but you guys got like a, a, a float spot and stock. You got multiple different ways that you spot and stock your mule deer up there, don't you? Yeah. So, I mean, when we're archery hunting them around home, we're just, you know, just going around to glassing vantage points and glassing, trying to find them deer where they're coming off of the hay fields or farm fields and then coming down with the coolies or, you know, into some badland areas and bedding up where we can, you know, you can physically see them and then you move in on them and stock in and, and get within bow range and wait for them to stand up, which seems easy, but it's, it's not real easy. <laughs> it's definitely one of the most challenging hunts you can do. And then down in Southern Alberta, along the South Saskatchewan river, we do a couple hunts there and I've got a small jet boat that we go up and down the river and you just go up the river and you just float down and then you glass the river banks and you'll find them deer bedded on the side hills and you just float past them until you're out of sight and then you get out and, you know, kind of plan your stock and, and you'll get into multiple stocks down there in a day. You know, I think the most I got in on four deer in one day with one hunter one time. So, usually usually you can get in on you know one or two good deer a day so it's, it's exciting and fast paced and the boat is great because you can access so much country and without having to put on you know lots of foot miles but down there the ranchers they they virtually won't let you drive your truck anywhere you know so you're limited to just the main roads and then from there you got to hike in on foot you know and not that I mean, i'm not against hiking and and going in but some of the hunters are limited to how far they can go in a day you know they can be in shape but well can you go walk for 10 miles which is a long ways and to get into some of them areas that's how far of a hike it is in there and then if you shoot them you gotta pack it out so just the, the boat allows us to access so much country and just makes it a lot easier for us well i'm a little bit uh let down that your prairie hunt is booked out for so long because that's I would like to do that one, but I'm probably just going to have to come back at some point and do the wilderness hunt again. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, you never know. There's always 
seems like something happens and I mean, a couple of permits will come up available or something like that. But yeah, it is. It's, it's, it is. It, I mean, it books out fast. I know every year that I go to the Pope and Young show and it would probably be booked out farther. Um, last year's Pope and Young show got canceled and I kind of foresee this one this year was supposed to be their 60th anniversary in Reno and I'll, I'll bet it's going to be canceled too. I mean, most of them big hunting shows have already canceled for this winter. So I would bet that the Pope and Young will be the next one on the list to be canceled. So yeah, you missing them too. Cause that's where the majority of my, my moose hunters come from is, is seems to be that Pope and Young shows where they, they all come from. I mean, that's where you originated from. I donated that, that moose hunt to the Pope and Young auction that year and, and you bought it and that's kind of where it all started. Well, now they're all going to come from the Fit Archer podcast. You're going to be flooded. There you go. Huh? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I always end, I like to I like to now end my podcast with just a couple questions. Like, you know, one of the things I want to bring to the listeners is like uh, tips, tactics, and gear. So if you had a tip, if you had any hunting tip that just make you a better hunter, I mean, you're a, you're not just a world-class outfit. You're a really, really good hunter too. You're, I mean, obviously you've been, you've been doing that since you could walk. You've been, you've been wrestling steers and hunting animals since you could walk and you get so many opportunities to hunt big game up by you. Um, what, what's like your number from an archery standpoint, what would be like your number one tip in, in killing animals with archery gear? Uh, well, I think with archery gear, you know, having the, the right equipment as far as a good setup and being proficient with it, you know, I see all the time I see hunters come up here, you know, I said, well, how, how far are you get out to? Oh, I've been shooting out to 80 yards. Well, they don't tell me that they just started shooting out to 80 yards a week before they come. You know, you come very prepared. And I could tell that because you're always posting videos, showing yourself shooting, and you were more than prepared. And <laughs> the results speak for themselves. You shot a moose at 80 yards, which I wouldn't recommend to just anyone to let them shoot at a moose at 80 yards. But when somebody is thoroughly, you know, proficient and prepared, an 80-yard shot is very doable with today's archery equipment. Um, so that's, first and foremost, I think guys come with with equipment that's not right. They don't have, you know, the right type of arrows, the right weight, the right broadheads, you know. You know, I remember when I, when I told you, when you guys first come up, I said, don't bring no expandable broadheads. You know, and most guys are, are, are using expandables because they shoot so good, but on moose, it's a heavy, you know, heavy animal. They've got thick bones, the expandables in our experience, just, they absolutely do not work. And then finally, I remember after about year two or three, I had to draw the line and say, you know, we, we can't, we're, there's too many moose being wounded because of these, you know, so that's, that's my biggest tip, probably the, the right equipment. And then and bringing the right gear as far as clothing you know you see guys that come ill-prepared with poor clothing and and they just like well i I don't know what to wear well here's an easy example go buy some good kuyu or stick it to gear get their down pants and get their heaviest down jacket and then good rain gear you know a few layers that's all you need you can come up here on a canadian hunt with that down and the rest of that gear and you can be comfortable in any kind of weather that we have because that down you can roll it up squish it down into your your little day pack it'll sit in there 
It doesn't take up no room. It takes up no weight, but yet you can take it out. And if it gets really cold, you can put that stuff on and you're going to stay warm. And if you're warm, you're going to enjoy yourself. You're going to have a good hunt. If you start to get cold or wet, you're going to be miserable. And that's going to be the end of your hunt right there. No, you're spot on. I mean, just shooting. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at the amount of people that will get really good quality hunts or even buy really good quality hunts and just don't spend time. And, you know, I'm mostly a bow hunter. Um, I'm all a bow hunter, but I just I'm amazed by the amount of people that just don't spend time with their bow. Just, man, yeah, you, get, they, you invest that kind of money and you, you could, you only, sometimes might only get one shot, make it count. And, and then you make, you make the guide miserable too. If you come ill prepared, because now the guide can go out in the first day, give you a great opportunity at an animal that should be a, you know, just in the bag done. And they mess it up because they're not prepared or their equipment is not right. Now that guy's got to go back out there and do that all over again. And that might've been that one chance, you know? So then they go another six days, the hunt isn't successful. And then the hunter at the end of it's disappointed because he's going home without an animal, but it's not really the guy's fault, but the guy's going to take the brunt of it because the hunter still didn't go home with an animal. And that's, I think a lot of hunters don't realize that, that when an opportunity presents itself to you, you need to capitalize. And if you don't be prepared to go home without something, you know, and it still, I see it all the time. Guys go home without an animal and they're disappointed. There's very few hunters, you know, and I, would, I put you into that category because you did go home without an animal the first time that can still stay positive and then want to do the hunt again because they, they didn't get that animal. So many guys judge a successful hunt on what they take home with them. If they don't have an animal, they think it was a total failure. And, you know, if you're using a bow, there's just, you're, you're limiting yourself to the amount of opportunities that you're going to have. I've been bow hunting since I've been about 10, 12 so I've, you know, I've messed up a lot and I failed at a lot of things. So it's easy just to overcome that by hey, just keep getting, just keep grinding at it, baby. Yeah. You know, you know, as we talked about workouts, one of the things that I, I joke about this, but it's absolutely spot on. The reason I do sucky workouts is because it makes every other failure in my life easy. Like yeah. the reason I get in that cold pool every morning, once I'm in the pool after the first minute, it's, I could stay in it most of the time, you know, your, your body, you know, you don't really feel it's not that cold anymore. It's the first sucky yeah. second of telling myself I got to get in it and how bad it sucks. But every time I do it, I'm just overcoming failure or overcoming, you know, telling my brain to do what I want it to do, kind of command and demand my brain to do what I want it to do instead of what it wants to do, which is always take the easy way out, pout, cry, be negative. So a lot of that, a lot of that transfers into hunting. Again, I, I always, it's so stupid to say, oh, I do my workouts and all this stuff to be a better hunter. Well, that's, I love it. You know, like you, I just, I love it. And so I got to capitalize on the opportunities when I can give myself every opportunity. I, I agree. Totally. It's just like a hard workout at the CrossFit gym. The worst part of it is going to be the first 30 seconds minute of it. And your brain's telling you, Oh, this is going to be terrible. But when you're done it, the last minute or when you're finished it, your brain is, you know, becomes one of the most powerful things because it's the gratification you get out of, out of working hard and, and accomplishing something that's tough is just, it's hard to describe to people, really. Oh, uh, you're totally right. Okay, so a tactic. Let's use, because here in Arizona now, our deer season opens up Friday. Our deer in Havelina, which is, Havelina is one of my favorite animals to hunt, but I'm going to try to fill my deer tag this year. So we do a lot of spot and stalk. So give me one of your tactics that maybe work well for 
you guys uh, when it comes to spot and stock mule deer hunting? I think spot and stock mule deer hunting, most guys, they, they see the deer from a vantage point, and before they leave that vantage point, they haven't thoroughly thought about their, you know, their route or route of how they're going to stalk that deer or where they want to get to. They just, they look at it. Oh yeah, that deer is right next to that tree. And then they lose elevation and get on, you know, the same ground level as the deer. And then all of a sudden everything looks totally different. And then they're lost. They're kind of stumbling around out there and then they might, you know, might bump another deer. You know, they just, they mess up their stock that way. Probably the biggest thing that I've learned over the years is when you're up high or have a vantage point, you're watching that deer is, look at absolutely every little detail that you can pick out so that you, when you start that stock, you know exactly where you need to get to and execute that stock so that you don't mess it up and look at all the terrain leading up because just because you can see a deer out there at a thousand yards, there might be another 10 deer in between you and that deer. And if there's another 10 deer there or even one deer, that one deer can jump up, go to your buck that you want to go after and take him and out of sight and out of your life forever. <laughs> so you need to you need to be real thorough when you're planning your stock and executing it. And I think guys, they, they mess up more big deer just because they don't plan it thoroughly. They just see it. Oh, Kate, let's go. And they get in a rush to take off and go after them. Oh, that's perfect. That's a million dollar tip right there. All right. Lastly, gear, and it can be anything, whether it's your boots, your camel, your clothes, rangefinder you know, phone, whatever. What What is one piece of gear that Cody Cassidy's not leaving home without? I would say my binoculars. I I use. I was gonna say I run. I don't run with nothing other than my own two legs. But that's the I but use, that's the lingo. Everybody says it. I'm running. I'm yeah, running the Suarez. Yeah. What are you running nowadays? I'm not running nothing. The only thing I run on is my own two legs. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> um. My binoculars, most important piece of equipment that I have, bar none. I use them more than I use my spot and scope, and I hunt in big country, so I use a pair of 15 by 56 Leicas. And the only reason that I have Leicas is because they have a rangefinder built into them. So that rangefinder is awfully useful when you're out in the field. Um, I prefer Swarovski glass over Leica, but Swarovski doesn't have a set of 15 by 56s with the rangefinder built into them they've got a pair of um, 10 by 50 or 10 by 42s with the rangefinder in them and they're a great set of glasses i love them but they're just not big enough for what we use you know when we're in the mountains glass and out here on the prairie you need the bigger the glass the better and just the 15 by 56s work the best for us and i i guide bighorn hunters with them you know all my mountain hunters and Lots of guys will tell me, oh, them things are too big. Well, just like anything, wear them all the time, get used to them, and you won't even think nothing of them. And once you, once, once you learn how to use them, you know, correctly, you'll, I personally feel you'll never go back to a pair of 10 power binoculars once you use them big ones. Are you, um, are you running those, Cody, off a tripod? <laughs> no. Well, you're hand-holding uh, 15s. Wow. Yeah, I hand hold them, and then what I'll do usually usually we can get somewhere and we can sit down, you know, or say if we're up on a big hilltop, glassing for mule deer. Lots of times it's it's in the truck, so you know, one elbow on the steering wheel, one elbow on the you know windowsill, 
and you've got a nice solid base there. But if you're out in the mountains somewhere, probably the, and this tip come from a outfitter that used to outfit in Alberta a hundred years ago. Um, Bert Regal used to outfit down in Southern Alberta, guided some of the biggest bighorns, you know, in all of Alberta's history. And he would take a rope, throw it around his, his legs, you know, his knees from knee to knee, or, you know, kind of around his thighs and then push out on his, with his elbows. And then that would create a, a real stable platform for him to glass from. And that's what I use. I just take a, I just have a small rope in my pack and it's, I've got to tie it off just at what I like or what feels comfortable for me. And I just throw it around my knees, rest your elbows on your knees and your legs don't get tired and your elbows are resting and you can hold your glasses just as virtually as steady as the, you know, having the, the adapter for your, your tripod. I'm going to have to try that. Yeah, we do. Um, I use 15s out here all the time. I mean, I have tens around my chest. So when I go in for a stock, yeah. you know, I got my tens there, but everything we do out here is 15 power. And I, I'm totally on board with what you're doing. I, I didn't know. I didn't realize like I made them with the rangefinder. My brother just flew out and he killed his first ever coos deer at 740 yards um, with my rifle. And it was so frustrating going from my Swarovski's 15s on my tripod, because we just use tripods, and then going over to my Leopold, you know, four power rangefinder and trying to find that deer at 700 yards. It's, it's, it's I'm like, I, so I was thinking of just getting 10 power. As soon as I find the deer with my 15s, I'd swap out my 10s, but I'm going to look at those Leicas because that's uh, to be able to just sit there and call out ranges. When, when they're rifle yeah. hunting, because we do long range rifle hunting out here. I mean, just be so slick. It is. It, it's really good. You know, and that's, that's the only reason we have them is so that we can call it a range, you know, a little faster if we need to, when we're with the client guiding a, you know, say a rifle mule deer hunter, you know, say the deer is out there at 600 yards. So a, a long range shot with the right equipment at 600 yards is, is really easy. You know, you don't even hardly have to, unless it's a, a really strong wind, but you can, you can just call that. They can dial their turret in. Boom, the deer's done. Where, you know, some of our longer shots, like a thousand plus, and I we don't shoot very many deer at a thousand plus, but we do do some because we use Gunworks rifles and we've got the G7 rangefinder. You know, we've got everything all set up. Um, then when you're past that, I think I think when you're past that 600 yard mark, that's when it starts to get a lot more technical as far as long range shooting. You need to have you know, you need to have everything dialed in just perfect. Um, so then you need to have a little bit more equipment. That's because, uh, say, if you're shooting uphill or downhill or if it's a, you know, a real humid day or then you need that G7 range finder. So I always pack that with me, too, you know, just as my backup if we're going to be shooting, you know, super long range. So the name of the, the game of hunting has changed a bit since Cody was just a kid, hasn't it? <laughs> I think all the deer that we let get away when I first started outfitting with the rifle hunters, that now when we see them, they're, they die, period. They do not get away. That the huge white tails, huge mule deer that we let get away, that they weren't hard shots. They're like five, 600 yards, but old school equipment, those were hard shots because no one, back in the day, no one practiced any kind of long range shooting or at least nobody that I was ever around. So now that we have this, all this equipment to shoot at these long ranges, I mean, it's this, it's changed the game big time when, you know, it's night and day different. It really is. And I'll, I'll let you run here, but what do you think that's going to do for the overall 
the overall game of hunting. So here we're in Arizona right now. They're I think they vote on December. They've already passed it through at a five to zero vote to ban all trail cameras. And now the sportsmen are fighting back. There's one Facebook or Instagram uh, bow hunting AZ is a page here. He's a nice, really, really great guy back here in Arizona. has got a petition going. I think he's got like 3,500 signatures to stop it. Cause he said the same thing that I did. I'm like, once you give away some freedoms to the government, you never get them back. And if you give up anything, yeah. whether it's, you know, just take trail cam, I think it's too extreme just to ban them. I think if they want to go to a season, whatever, yeah, but obviously. if they, if they ban them, what's I next? Are they going to go towards long? Cause he said this, he goes, are they going to start going towards long range scopes? Are they going to start going towards, I think, you know, that stuff? I think they'll go towards the long range shooting up here before they do the, you know, the trail cameras, but, where do you where do you draw the line between long range shooting? Even even a a simple scope with hash marks in it, if you shoot it enough, you can shoot out to seven, eight, nine hundred yards. You know, if you know that gun really good, you know you don't even have to have a turret on it. But I I do agree. I I do foresee up here it it coming someday. You know because it it is changing so much, and you know you see the you know, local farmer driving around with his 30-30 believer action in the truck. I mean, if there's not a deer standing 100 yards away from his truck, he's not getting nothing. Where, you know, we're glassing across an entire river system, and if we see a deer on the other side, it can be a 1,000 yards away. And I would say we have, at a 1,000 yards, we have a 95% chance that we're going to kill that deer and do a good job of it too, not just hope that we're going to lob one in there and kill him. I mean, it's, we're going to send one, and it's going to be on target. You know, the only time that we don't like shooting that range is if it's windy, you know, then, then we call it off because it's too iffy, but, you know, so it, it's changed the game a lot. Um, now trail cameras, I'm not against them. I don't use them as much anymore because I was sick of donating them to all the local hunters that kept taking them from me. <laughs> so I, I don't use hardly any of them because I still know where most of the big deer are and, and seeing that deer with your own two eyes is invaluable. So I still go out and do lots of scouting to find them that way. But I don't think there's nothing wrong with the trail cameras because it gives somebody a target to go after. And then they're, they're fixed on that one deer. And it can be an older deer, which is, in my mind, them are the ones you want to shoot. You don't want to shoot the three- and four-year-old deer. You know, let them live because that's, they're in the prime of their breeding age. You know, shoot the deer that it's five, six, seven, eight years old and let the rest, you know, go about their business and trail cameras let you do that because you learn what's there, what isn't there. And it's, it's a great hobby for guys. I mean, there's guys that are absolutely addicted to their trail cameras. It's just like them guys open up a Christmas present every time they go check their, their SD card out of it. Yeah, no, it doesn't affect me to be honest. I have four trail cameras and they're still hanging in the same spot. They were, Two years ago, right off my windowsill, I, yeah. I never put them out. I think the challenge uh, they run yeah. into in Arizona is they get on these water holes where, you know, there'll be a lot of outfitters will run the same water hole and something like the Arizona Strip and yeah. some of these real big units. And, and then you get the stealing of them and people complain. But, um, yeah, you know what bothered me about trail cameras the most was I'd get a picture back in Wisconsin. I'd get a picture of a giant buck on my property, and I could never see him in real life. I was like, I hate trail cameras. It's just showing me how bad of a hunter I really am. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. so. And but, I mean, we did. We, it allowed us to kill some really good deer over the years, but it, 
it got to the point where I could even lock my cameras up and guys would bring in a power saw and cut the tree down and take my trail camera. And then after that, I just, you know what, this is, I'm losing sleep over this. It's making me miserable. It's making me resent other hunters that are out there that are taking my stuff. And it's not, you know, it, it was the, uh, the a-holes that were stealing my stuff, but, and that's a, a very small fraction of the, of the population of guys that are like going to go that low and, and steal your, your camera, but it was happening. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't bear the fact that people were stealing my stuff and it was costing me a bunch of money because some of them infrared cameras, you know, at the time they're four or $500 cameras and all of a sudden you lose three or four of them. Well, that's, that's a lot of money. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. And any industry, it doesn't matter what it is, hunting, doctors, lawyers, dentists, doesn't matter what it is. You're going to have a percent of people that are just scumbags and this yeah. the hunting industry too. I don't understand it. I don't, I've never understood why somebody would steal somebody else's equipment. Like it just blew my mind. I had a double bull blind stolen one time and, and they stole it. And I'm like, well, but, but here's the, here's the good news for you, Cody. If you do want to start running trail cameras again, pay attention to the Arizona hunting pages. Cause if they do ban this, there's going to be a lot of trail cameras for sale at a really <laughs> great price. Sale, <laughs> yeah. I hope they don't yeah, go through with it. Be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope they don't too, because Arizona's got a good, they got a good thing going on there. They're shooting some, some really big deer on the strip and they're shooting big elk there. And, and them guys know that them deer are there. So they're, they're finding them big deer and then they're, they're hunkering down on them and, and they're getting the job done. And, you know, I would say normally if they found a, a lesser deer without the trail cameras, they'd shoot that deer. But knowing that that big deer is there, it's making some guys go home empty handed just because they're waiting for that big deer and, and trying to kill them. So in all reality, I think it's just, it's allowing more deer to mature and, 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 you know, hit a ripe old age. I think you're spot not on. Everyone's a trophy hunter, but you know, I'm a trophy hunter, so you know, that's just my opinion, you know. So I want older, bigger deer out there and you know, some guys aren't trophy hunters and so be it. That's each of their own, but if you're asking my opinion, I want I want deer to be older, bigger. If you ain't a trophy hunter, don't put in for the Arizona strip then so I can draw my tag, dang it. Stop taking my <laughs> tags. But so that that leads me do, do you uh are do you apply for Arizona for anything? I don't apply for nothing down there. I, I should have years ago and I haven't yet. Um, so I don't know if I ever will now. I probably should start applying even just for desert bighorns because if I'm ever going to finish my grand slam, that's probably the only way they'll ever do it is by winning, you know, or drawing a, a hunt down there somewhere. You know, the, the, the Arizona strip, the mule deer tags, the elk tags, all that, you know, that's, that's fine and dandy, but in all reality, if I drew, I probably, I probably wouldn't have no time to even go down there and hunt them because my fall is, is totally consumed with, with guiding all the hunters up here. So this year was one of the few years that I've ever got to hunt much for myself. And I, I did take full advantage of it, put a strain on my marriage, but I spent 55 days hunting bighorns this fall. But you killed a great one. Yeah, I didn't kill myself, but um, a buddy. Well, actually, we we killed two rams this year. A uh, uh, young, actually, my my cousin's um, second youngest boy. Uh, he come with us and shot a, a real nice ten and a half year old ram. And then uh, a guy that I rode with for quite a few years, he come with me at the end of season, and we killed a twelve and a half year old ram that was a very pretty ram. Not a good scoring ram. He's kind of small base and tight, but. 
he was a real twister and he'll he's a looker you know so up on the wall he's gonna he's gonna look pretty wow well you're always welcome to come come down in january when you got some time off and you can buy an over-the-counter deer tag and we can go chase mule deer javelina whatever you want i so, know i've been i've been meaning to do that because curtis has a place in maricopa and i'd like to come down there and and spend a couple of weeks bumming around out there in the desert and and trying to shoot one of them mule deer i keep saying i'm going to do it but i just have never done it yet see and your wife would love you even more get her out of that cold winter bring her down here i know she'd be game for it (laughs) yeah well one day if you do you always look me up but Cody, I can't thank you enough, man. You're you're just a world class guy, world class outfit. I I invite anybody to look into you guys, and I'll put the your uh, website into the show notes. Big Knife Outfitters, you guys just run a spectacular camp, and and I truly do. I just I hope the Lord will bless me again with the ability to come back up there and hunt with you at some point and uh, chase moose yep. or deer, whatever it is. I don't care. You guys are just you just you're some of the funnest guys I've ever hunted with. You have a great guides and horses i can't i just can't ever say enough about it i tell everybody about it so and thanks for taking time out i know you're going out to chase some deer right now and and i appreciate you take time and time out to speak on the fit archer podcast and uh, i'll do what i'll always do what i can to to support you and help you so if we get to hunt together again that'll, that'll be a blessing no i'm sure we will we appreciate everything jp and like you said before we we had some good times i'm sure we'll have some more good times to come too all right, Cody. Well, I'll let you go, and uh, God bless you, and take care. Okay, buddy? You bet. You too, JP. All right, bye.